This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. He terrified and confounded the FBI's top criminal profilers. And this case went on to be such a bombshell that the FBI has concealed a good portion of it and is also continually asking the public's help in locating and identifying other victims. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. My name is Maureen Callahan. I am a critic at large at the New York Post, an investigative journalist and author. The disappearance of this young girl from a roadside coffee stand in Anchorage, Alaska, was so terrifying to Alaskans themselves. But the local police and the FBI really didn't know what to make of it. It seemed on its face like this young girl had taken off. And I wanted the reader to follow the investigation and to come upon this dawning horror and realization that there was a serial killer on the loose with an MO that was completely unprecedented. So why don't we start with that day? It is a very cold, very dark night in Alaska. It's February 2012. The sun goes down at like 3.30, 4 o'clock. A young woman by the name of Samantha Koenig has just turned 18 years old, and she is working at a roadside kiosk in Anchorage, Alaska. Now, these are coffee kiosks that abut many roads. It's part of the culture in Anchorage. And it's such a part of the culture that it never occurred to anyone that it would be dangerous for a young girl to be working these kiosks alone at night. Right as she's closing, up to the window comes a hooded figure who sticks a large thermos through the window and you can see her begin to make his coffee. And this is what law enforcement would later see on surveillance video taken from inside the kiosk. Samantha is going about her business and then you see the muzzle of a gun and it's pointed through the window, which has no screen. And you see her back up and throw her arms in the air and move away. And then you see this figure put his hands around either side of the window and he leaps inside like a panther. And then he gets her on her knees and he takes her out and he just walks her away. Now, when the local police department first gets its look at this video, 
Samantha's already been gone about 12 to 15 hours. How long was her shift? Didn't she have somebody relieve her? She was closing out. She was actually waiting for her boyfriend who was due to come pick her up. The person who abducted Samantha, who we now know was Israel Keys, later told the FBI he expected, based on just staking out the kiosk, that whoever was in the kiosk did not have a vehicle of their own because there wasn't one parked close enough. And he knew someone was going to come pick her up. And his plan initially was to take the both of them. Now that alone is a very bold admission. This man was going to abduct two people. He suspected that she had a boyfriend coming, right? So a young, strong guy. This was part of the excitement for him. And unfortunately for Samantha, her boyfriend was just running 10 minutes late. He missed her by 10 minutes. He knew something was wrong immediately. Samantha's father knew something was wrong immediately. But because of Samantha's station in life, she had a history with drugs. She came from a broken home. Her dad was reported to be a hell's angel. The police did not prioritize this the way they would have prioritized, say, a wealthy, young, white, blonde girl going missing. So they assumed she took the money out of the register and ran off to party for a few days. Hmm. And she would just come home And it wasn't just her dad and it wasn't just her boyfriend who were highly alarmed. It was the entire city of Anchorage. They knew something was very wrong. Samantha's face was plastered everywhere. There was an agent at the FBI by the name of Steve Payne who would go on to become the lead agent in this case. He initially offered help, which the police department declined. What? Why? They thought they can handle it? This is where human ego comes into play. But once the Anchorage Police Department got a hold of that surveillance video, they then did call Payne back and they said, we think we could use some help. No kidding. A city like Anchorage in Alaska, is it a high crime area? It does have a lot of crime. And Anchorage in Alaska in general is a fascinating place. And I was surprised to learn that many people who live there are expats from the lower 48. Hmm. They're people who typically really want to be left alone. Alaska, probably more than any other state in the union, places such a premium on independence and liberty and personal freedoms. They don't pave the roads because that is too onerous of a, of a governmental hmm. intervention, right? So within this context and then within Samantha's background, It's understandable in a sense to see why there might have been this lack of urgency until the surveillance. Well, it really wasn't the surveillance that did it because there were a fair amount of investigators who thought Samantha planned it with this guy. Oh, are you serious? They were in on it together. Again, this goes to the assumptions about who this young girl was. It didn't occur to Anybody on this investigation, including the FBI, to start pulling surveillance videos from the surrounding big box stores until about two and a half weeks later. Once they pull those videos, they see Samantha breaking away from this guy and running. And she's running with her arms behind her back and he tackles her. This was outside like a Walmart or something? Or where was it? It's a major avenue. I mean, this is like four lanes of traffic going in both ways. There is a gym a big gym that is right near her kiosk. There is an IHOP. 
There is a Home Depot. There are people passing them by. When he loads her into his pickup truck, there are people surrounding them trying to get into their own vehicles, but he has so expertly Mm -hmm. and quickly terrified her into silence. Several weeks after Samantha has disappeared, her father and boyfriend see a text message come in. There are all these texts coming in from Samantha's phone, which is only further confusing this investigation. This text says, Connors Bog Park. They were told it was going to be under a photo of a missing dog. And James and Samantha's boyfriend, Wayne, rushed to this bulletin board in this park and they beat the cops, they beat the FBI. And there in a Ziploc baggie is a ransom note with a photo of Samantha. Mm. And she's alive in the photo. This photo shows Samantha with her hair braided. She's wearing makeup. She's looking at the camera. There is a newspaper dated February 12th, 2020. So that is a proof of life offered on the part of whoever took her. Her father and her brother must have just been relieved, I would guess, to get this proof of life photo. The ransom note gave them hope. Mm-hmm. And the ransom note demanded $50,000, something like that, to be deposited into Samantha's bank account. What was unusual and hopeful for the investigators was that her ATM card was being used all over Anchorage. Hmm. Someone was withdrawing the daily maximum, like $500. You know, they kind of really can't believe that whoever has this card doesn't know that you can track its movements. They're really racing against time, hoping that whoever has this card doesn't realize this. Are they nervous that this is actually sort of a trap or they are falling for something? Or do they really think they're going to outsmart this guy at the end? They really don't know. You know, the card was being used in and around Anchorage. So they were surveilling ATMs all over town. I mean, they would always be like, two minutes behind Mm. this guy. Then it went dead. A week later, that ATM card has been used one minute ago in a tiny town in New Mexico. Oh, no. This is sort of like the movie moment of the investigation where Steve calls all the other agents. You know, everybody's out of bed in the field office in downtown Anchorage. They're watching this this card get used across the border right away. So this person has figured out, I can take out $500 right before midnight. I'm going to cross a border. I'm going to take out $500 after midnight. That's $1,000 in a 24-hour period. They get on the phone immediately. People are just galvanized and they are rousing themselves out of bed in the middle of the night and rushing to these scenes, hoping to find the user of this ATM card who they are now convinced has Samantha. And their primary hope is that they not only catch him, but that Samantha is with him and that she is unhurt and alive. I just want to make sure I get this straight. He's gone from Alaska Mm -hmm. to New Mexico and then eventually Mm -hmm. to Texas. This is a guy whose MO, as we know it, was the unprecedented steps of when he felt the urge to kill, he would fly out of Anchorage where he was living with his girlfriend and his 10-year-old daughter. Hmm. He would fly into a major hub like a Chicago where he would then rent a car and he would take that car and he would begin to go on the hunt, as he called it. And part of that involved unearthing what he called caches or kill kits all over the continental United States of America. And these were five-gallon Home Depot buckets that he had preloaded with guns, ammo, zip ties, Drano to accelerate human decomposition, Mm. wads of cash that came from bank robberies he's also committed all over the United States. These bank robberies 
were ways for him to cool off after the high of an abduction and a murder or murders, because we then learned he liked to take people in pairs as well. And he would find someone in remote areas at random, no victim profile. These could be young, old, thin, overweight. They seem wealthy. They seem indigent. It really doesn't matter. So he's an opportunist. Oh, yes. But he is on the hunt. Mm -hmm. What he does typically is move the bodies across state lines and dispose of the remains so expertly that many of these cases remain open as missing persons cases. So we're in New Mexico, I think, at this point. And we're in Texas now. He was pinging in New Mexico with her bank card, and now he's in Texas. Right. Is there activity on her cell phone still? Samantha's cell phone has stopped sending text messages. It's gone dead. What was he saying on those text messages? Well, the night he took Samantha, he began sending text messages from her cell phone to her boyfriend Hmm. saying, I know what you did. I'm going away for a couple of nights. I need to be by myself. She knew he had cheated on her. She was so upset she couldn't bring herself to see his face. All of these things that, again, confound the investigators. The text stopped coming. So really, all the FBI has to go on is this ATM card that's still in use. And it's begun compressing its usage to a really small radius in Texas, in a small town called Lufkin. Texas Ranger named Steve Rayburn sees a bolo coming across his wires, right? And this is telling them to be on the lookout for the most generic of suspects. Tall white man, that's all they've got to go on. That's helpful. The FBI field agent in Lufkin also gets a call. She calls Rayburn and says, I want to come over. And together they decide what they're going to do is just go to all of the hotels in Lufkin and just start looking through the registries and see if there's anyone from Alaska there. And there is. Now the rangers are completely electrified. They know the room number. They can look at the room. They see this middle-aged white man on the balcony and he's eyeballing a vehicle below. And then he exits the building and he starts loading stuff up. So now they know that's their guy. And he begins very slowly exiting that parking lot. Now, once he gets on US 59, he can fly, he can go. They have a period of maybe three minutes to find a reason to pull this guy over. So Rayburn is radioing to the detective who is on his tail and saying, I need you to find a reason to pull over. Keys has stopped at a red light. And once it turns green, he goes and he's going three miles over the speed limit. Hmm. And on go the sirens. The cop who pulled him over later said, I couldn't even believe this guy pulled over (laughs) because he wasn't really doing anything. When he is caught, it's very calm. And then they bring him in. And then we start to learn all of this stuff about who he is. So Keyes is extradited from Lufkin to Anchorage, Alaska. Okay. So the FBI has two timelines of travels of Israel Keyes. One was made public and one was internal and kept secret. And it was informed by many things, including his own journals. At the end of the FBI's secret internal timeline, his last known travel is, of course, that extradition. But there is a curious, unremarked upon stop in Oklahoma City, which I can revisit with you later. Okay. So when they get him, they realize they have one shot with Israel Keys to get him to confess to Samantha Koenig. And she's nowhere to be found, I'm assuming, in the car. She is nowhere to be found. There is not a trace of Samantha, although they have discovered on his person her ATM card. And then once they open the trunk, there's her cell phone. Is that enough for them to assume 
that she is dead because they have a photo that purports that she is alive. There's no blood. There's no crime scene. He probably doesn't have any scratches on him. So right now, the only thing they could do is get him on the fraud charges, I'm assuming. Is that right? 100% right. If he had kept his mouth shut, that's all they would have gotten him on. That's it. And that's why this was such a high stakes interrogation, Hmm. because they really had to leverage the fact that they knew nothing and make him think that they knew everything to get him to confess and to get the investigation moving into who else he had taken and killed. Right. And that is legal. They can lie to a certain extent to get information out of them. That is such a great point because they can lie. But guess who can't? A prosecutor. And guess what happens the minute Keyes is extradited to Alaska? The federal prosecutor in this case goes to the FBI and says, this is my case now, and I'm going to run this interrogation. Hmm. And Kevin Feldis, meanwhile, is saying, you know, he's the prosecutor, and I'm going to I'm gonna lead this interrogation. And so now they can't lie to Keyes. He's talking to his court-appointed defense lawyer. Okay, and that's in Anchorage. That's in Anchorage. And this guy, by the way, he's not your average court-appointed defense lawyer. He is one of the most prominent defense attorneys in Alaska, and he is staunchly anti-death penalty. Initially, the deal his attorney makes with the federal prosecutor is if you take the death penalty off the table, he will confess to Samantha. How do we get from, hey, Keys, you got her bank card, this is fraud, to him confessing? What is that conversation even like? How do they convince him of that? This remains dark to us, how they negotiated that. I believe he was promised that the death penalty would be taken off the table. I spoke to his mother who sort of shed light on this. And she told me that when she saw the footage of of Israel being arrested in Lufkin, Texas, on the side of that road, that she knew that he knew his life was over. Hmm. And he came to believe they had enough to get him on the kidnapping and murder of Samantha. Hmm. Okay. It would be in his best interest to confess to that, get the death penalty off the table, and use what he would call his other stories that dated back to the time he was, quote, two different people. And he was asked, how long have you been two different people? And he chuckled and he said, a long time, 14 years. We're talking with journalist Maureen Callahan, who has written a New York Times bestselling book about Israel Keys, one of the most disturbing serial killers in American history. The FBI has now caught Keys, and he has confessed to the murder of Samantha Koenig. But now investigators are learning that there are likely many, many other victims. They had no idea he was a serial killer. They just thought this was an abduction, right? And then a murder. Well, they thought it was an abduction and a murder. But again, when they got him in Texas and they tried talking to him and they realized this guy's not rattled. He is acting like we picked him up for jaywalking or littering. This isn't his first time. What did Key say happened? So he took her, put her in his shed. It's about one in the morning. He's got the radio really loud, heavy metal. His girlfriend, he's waiting for her to go to bed. She's a night owl. He's checking on his daughter and making sure she's asleep. Now, mind you, in about five hours, he and his daughter are catching a cab to go to the airport to catch a flight to New Orleans where they're going to board like a family-themed cruise. 
the timeline is so tight that the FBI, just they're, they're not believing him. He rapes Samantha in his shed and then he strangles her. He strangles her to death. He's leading her to believe he's going to let her go and he never has any intention of letting her go. Then he says, I went inside, I took a shower, slept for a little bit, got up, took my kid and, and we called the cab and we were out the door. And, and they're like, what did you do with Samantha? What did you do with her remains? And he said, well, I left them in the shed. With no fear that his girlfriend was going to find it? No, I wasn't thinking anything, really. I'm thinking it's 20 degrees in Alaska and I'm going to be just fine. Yeah. Then they want to know about the ransom note. Well, when did he take that photo? How did he do that? When he got back from the vacation, they were gone for about two weeks. He would go into his shed while his daughter was at school. He took some makeup. Some of it was Samantha's. Some of it was his girlfriend's. Made up her face, braided her hair. He took some fishing wire and a needle and he sewed her eyelids open. So she would look like she was alive for the photo, for the proof of life photo. Exactly. They need to know where she is. And he gives them right off the top of his head, the coordinates to the deepest part of one of the deepest lakes, about 40 miles away. Wow. They go out there. There's a snowpack dead on coordinates. They see a fresh scar in the ice. And they think this guy is telling the truth. They recover Samantha. They're really up against it because they've got to find out what else he's done. Was it like a fishing hole? Like he cut winter fishing hole and, and put her in? Is that what this was? Yes. Goes to this lake, which is a very popular ice fishing spot. And this, again, this is part of the the brazenness and the the just the complete lack of concern that anybody's ever going to be onto what he's doing. Did this all in the sort of compressed timeline that he did. He had no ties to Samantha, that it was this crime of opportunity. He told them he had been looking at other kiosks. They were either too well lit or too well trafficked. You know, that was the extent of it. The agents in these interrogations, once this confession happened, you know, they called the FBI's criminal profilers immediately. Mm -hmm. And they said, you've got to help us. How do we get what we can out of him? And they said, we don't know what to tell you because we've never seen one like this before. Why? How is he different from a Bundy? What are the differences between these kind of guys? Bundy was someone that Keyes really idolized. Mm -hmm. But Bundy had a very specific victimology, a very specific type. He went after really young girls, like collegiate. And then later, as he progressed and worsened, you know, he would go after children. It was predictable. It was a pattern. It was a very predictable pattern. But with Keys, he's going after men, women, young, old. He's traveling all over the United States of America. He's taking people from one state, disposing of them in another. The FBI's official line is that for various reasons, they believe he killed 11 people. I think it's a far higher number. There are several missing persons cases that I explore in the book, some of which are very famous. People you would know from reading like People magazine or true crime blogs that seem very likely to have fallen prey to Israel Keys. Law enforcement and the public at large really need to learn from him. He was asked, who is your favorite serial killer? Sounds like an odd question. Hmm. I think the phraseology is odd. But he said, it's the one who hasn't been caught yet. Mm -hmm. By which he meant, there's another one behind me and he's even better. Where do you start with Israel Keys in his life? This question 
hung over me the entire time I was writing the book. I spent hundreds of hours over like a year and a half interviewing these agents who most closely worked the case, who were in the room interrogating him. And this is the one thing they would never venture into, his background. Hmm. He tells the story of growing up with these parents he describes as cultists. Mm. And they are just cult shopping, cult to cult to cult to cult. They are nomads all over the country. And Keyes is the second of 10 children. Keyes and his older sister, America, they're the first two. They were raised in Utah until about the age of five. His parents were Mormons. <laughs> but they never let the kids out of the house. And they never went to preschool or kindergarten. And the neighbors were getting very concerned and curious. And that's when Heidi and Jeff were like, we're out of here we know there's going to be a knock on the door from CPS or something. So they take the kids and they move all the way up to Colville, Washington, which is this super remote mountainous region where John says he's going to build them a cabin and it takes years and they're living in tents in the freezing winter and they have no electricity. When this house is done, this cabin, they have no electricity. They have no indoor plumbing Israel is taught from a very young age how to hunt animals so they can eat. Wow. They don't go to school. They never see a doctor. They are completely isolated. They join a white supremacist church called the Ark, where Israel, around 13, 14, befriends a pair of brothers named Chevy and Shane Kehoe. Chevy and Shane Kehoe will later go on to be on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. One of them has ties to Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. Keyes also tells the psychologist who is doing his evaluation. At this age, he has become very interested in breaking and entering. This takes the form of everything from stealing guns to just moving people's furniture around and then going and hiding in the woods and watching people come home and see the terror on their faces that someone's been in their house and moved their stuff around, but they haven't taken anything. Did you get the impression that they were physically abused by their parents? Yes, I mean, okay. yes. Okay. I think I think Israel definitely was abused by his father. It may have been sexual as well. I think it I think it probably was. Keyes' commanding officer in the army was convinced of it. Wow. Oh yeah. John Keyes died under very mysterious circumstances. What kind of mysterious circumstances? So they were traveling by train. I believe this time it was from Maine to Indiana. Think of people who sort of look like not of this time, not of this era. John on this days-long trip is just decompensating, just decompensating. This family is just so disturbing and disturbed. And finally, the conductor says, you have got to get this man off of this train and into a hospital. Like you all have to get off this train. And they did. And nobody knows where they went. We know that John died, but there's no obituary that really can be found. There's no death notice. There's no autopsy on record. We don't know where he's buried. The whole thing is shrouded in mystery. Had he availed himself of Western medicine, he probably would never have died. He has this background. He has not been socialized. He's abused by at least his father. Yet he still gets married and has a daughter. It just seems so counterintuitive to this type of lifestyle that he wants to live. Is this just compartmentalizing different parts of his life? Well, there are several things going on. I think he realized that he was going to have to wear a very good mask 
for a very long time. And part of that mask would be a wife and a family, right? And he knows this because he knows at this very early age, he's different. Like you were alluding to, he's developing like a textbook serial killer. He is abusing and torturing animals. He is lighting fires. He is building bombs at 14. He's hiding in the woods and training himself to stay still for hours and realizing that he can hunt for people out there and take people. He's online on dating sites, always looking, and he finds this woman who he would later refer to as his wife. They were never legally married. When she gets pregnant, he at first does not want her to have the child, breaks it off with her. A couple of weeks later, changes his mind. And when his daughter is born, she notices something profoundly shift in him. And I have to tell you, everyone who ever knew him, even the most cynical, hardened agents on this case, they all believed he truly loved his daughter, Hmm. who is now 18, incredibly. No signs of abuse or anything from her? No. In fact, Tammy, her mother, she began to really, really struggle with substance abuse. And Keyes figured out a way to basically get primary custody without ever having to file, without ever making Tammy feel like she was a failure as a mother or as a human being. You know, that relationship stayed very, very amicable and she was very much a part of his life, but he was intent on getting his child out of what he thought was a truly dangerous situation. He doted on her. He put her in the gifted and talented program at the local school. Anytime she wasn't in his sight, she was to call him every hour. I mean, we know why. He knows there are people like him out there. So he goes into the army at some point, right? He goes in at like 18. How and why is such a mystery. He enlists in um, New Jersey. And this is so interesting because his family had property up in New York at a place called Constable very remote. And his father at some point signed it over to Keyes. Constable comes up, he starts talking about it. And he tells them that he has buried 9,000 rounds of Black Talon ammo on those grounds. Black Talon ammo is illegal. Those are known as cop killer bullets. Mm -hmm. They are deadly. Because they can pierce the vest. Yeah. Yes. And then he tells them, well, that's not all. I mean, he really loves to build bombs. Within minutes, bomb squads are deployed on both sides of the country. There's one that heads to Constable, and then there's one that heads to the house in Anchorage. This is where the case really does get its its redesignation from serial murder to terrorism. Had he not been caught, he had this master plan. He was going to travel around the country as sort of an itinerant handyman slash construction worker. And what he was going to do was capitalize on the frequency of natural disasters and and then take people because who's going to miss people from a place that's had a tornado or a flood? Like Katrina, right? Exactly. Well, I've read a couple of stories somewhat recently of women going missing after Katrina, after Hurricane, and after 9-11. That actually happened a couple of times because they are lost in the shuffle. And their husbands kill him. He had all these other plans, like he was going to set fire to a string of churches all over the United States. And and he was going to kill people and pose them in really shocking tableaus and leave them in these churches and then burn them to the ground. So can you imagine the sort of national panic? This is someone with an unbelievable amount of anger. And I think he had an exceptional amount of rage towards his mother for not protecting him from his father. Yeah. 
and not protecting him from their way of life, which caused him and his siblings so much physical agony and pain and social isolation. Some of his siblings are still cultists to this day. His mother is still a cultist. I wondered if any of his siblings had acted out, certainly not to this extent, but had anybody else gotten in trouble? You said he was one of 10, right? Well, it's interesting you asked because there was one sister and he told this to the, the psychiatrist who did his evaluation who likes to do the same things he did. Hmm. By which I mean set fires. Torture animals. Probably torture animals, breaking and entering, stealing, really dangerous stuff. And he said, I stopped doing things with her because she couldn't keep her mouth shut. Oh, gosh. What motivates him to not keep his mouth shut? The death penalty's off the table. Why not continue staying silent about everybody? Does he just now want everyone to know what he's accomplished? Is that what motivates him? So this case just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. (laughs) So then he changes his mind after Samantha. He comes back to the table and he says, you know what? I want the death penalty and I want it fast. So now the investigators have some leverage. They have something he wants. He says, I will give you two bodies and a name. Hmm. So he says, I need you to pull up a Google map. And he's like, Vermont. Holy shit, like Vermont. What's this guy doing in Vermont? He says, this town. And he says, this couple went missing. They've never solved the case. And nobody knows what happens to them. I was in that area. He had dug up his kill kit. This is in Essex, Vermont. In what year? So they went missing, I believe it was 2011. Okay. Time between his abductions and murders, it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter, which is goes to sort of why he was caught in the end. And so he's out on the hunt one night and it's raining and it's dark and he is stalking the outdoor parking lot of an apartment complex. And this guy pulls in, in his car, he's alone, pulls a newspaper over his head And he's sort of running to his building and Keyes is following him and this guy doesn't know it. Hmm. And the way Keyes describes it, he takes his right arm and he is lunging for this guy and he just misses him. And the guy gets in his door and that's it. And Keyes says, if that guy had been five seconds slower that night, he would have been the one. Wow. So instead, he goes out walking around and he comes upon this ranch style house. He's got these rules, looks in the backyard and it doesn't seem like there are any kids there. Doesn't seem like there are any animals there. He cuts the phone line. No home alarm system goes off. He decides he's going to break in and he's going to take whoever's in there. And he's pretty sure it's a married couple. He climbs in, he gets in through the garage. There's a door that leads into the kitchen. He breaks the glass window. He's in their bedroom and has Bill and Lorraine Courier zip-tied and on their bellies. And he abducted them, took them from their home in the middle of the night, drove them to a remote abandoned farmhouse. He drove Bill and Lorraine up at like one in the morning. They fight. They both fight. This sends Keys into just a fury because he has a very specific way he likes things to go. Mm-hmm. He always has a plan when he takes people. If anything gets in the way of that plan, he cannot handle it. And he winds up shooting Bill to death. That was not what he wanted. And then he strangled her. And he then realizes the sun is coming up. He had planned to burn the house down, but now he can't because people are going to be on the road. Pours Drano on the bodies to start accelerating the decomposition, especially the fingerprints, the faces, puts them in huge garbage bags, and he leaves them in the bottom of the basement. Now he's asked, aren't you worried somebody's going to discover those bodies? And he says, no. 
I could tell by looking at that house that whoever buys it is going to buy it for the land and they're going to raise the house without ever going in. Hmm. And if somebody does decide to try to go down into the basement, they're going to assume that rancid smell is a dead animal and they're going to turn and walk away. And he was completely right. By the time the FBI gets agents to the site, that house has been raised and the basement has been excavated. So there is no trace of Bill or Lorraine Courier. Hmm. He realized after he confessed to the couriers that they didn't know half of what they thought they knew or what they were implying they knew or leading him to believe. They needed everything that he had to tell them in order to find anybody. And he actually said this to them. He said, now I know you'll never find another one without me. You have to give me everything I want. How nauseating. In fact, he tried to commit suicide in prison. Early on into this investigation, this is also something the government has kept secret. By law, they had to put him in the psych ward. And he got out of that psych ward so fast. They were all demoralized. They thought, this guy has cut some sweetheart deal with the feds. This is the most hated man in Alaska. You know, everybody wants him dead. He's cut this deal with the feds. He's getting everything he wants. He's getting the New York Times delivered to his cell daily. He's getting internet access. In my first book, I have a serial killer, it actually sounds pretty similar, who put his victims' bodies in an outdoor washroom on his own property, but buried them in his house and in his backyard because he wanted to be close to them. But mm -hmm. this killer, John Reginald Christie, in my book, was not dynamic he was sort of a blended to the wallpaper kind of guy. And he reveled in the attention because he had never gotten this kind of attention. How in your book do you sort of try to balance getting to know the victims and the victims' families and still getting into the mind of, of somebody like him, which my struggle has always been that the killer is frequently more interesting than the victims. I was very, very cognizant about describing his crimes in such a way that what he did and how he did it, how he got away with it would be edifying for law enforcement, for anyone studying criminal psychology or the criminal mind without using details that were not edifying, right? That were just sort of ghoulish mm -hmm. and, and really keeping the victims and their families in mind. And secondly, I was always more fascinated with the manhunt and the investigation and how that unfolded than I was in Keyes himself. I remain endlessly fascinated with the mysteries that still abound surrounding this case, including the cold cases all over the country that are very likely his, that most definitely should be reopened and, and reinvestigated. Right. How many did he confess to solidly? They asked him point blank, and he said, according to the FBI, less than a dozen. They settled on the number 11 because less than a dozen is weird. Most people round by fives. Mm -hmm. He didn't. They would search his cell regularly. And one of the things that they found were 11 skulls that he had drawn in his own blood. And then on top of one, he had written, we are one. He would refer to his victims as mine. They're mine. If he were to confess to the FBI any more than he did, they would no longer be his. I personally believe that number is just way higher. Mm -hmm. He was 36 when he was arrested. He said he'd been a different person for 14 years. I think his first victim was 12-year-old Julie Harris up in Colville in Washington. And I think it would be something of a black eye for the FBI to admit that it probably is and that they just don't know. How does Israel Keyes' story end? 
Israel Keys ultimately ends his own life, but in doing so, he has created yet another beginning. And that beginning is the complete certainty that this case will never be closed. So, you know, anyone who is interested in potentially visiting or revisiting some of the cold cases in the annals of American crime, there's a, a fascinating cold case uh, that I call the Boca Killer. There's one survivor of that spree who lived and who went to the police and worked up a sketch. And coupled with the MO of all of the abductions and the kills, along with the sketch that is a dead ringer for Israel Keys. My mother is a huge true crime fan who is disturbed by nothing, frankly. I mean, it's unbelievable the things that she can watch or read or listen to. And Israel Keys, she said, was fucked up. She said it was very disturbing to hear about his stories. It takes a lot for me to be shocked and surprised. I imagine at some point you really didn't want to read the details of some of these cases. I mean, sometimes you can't. I felt that it was important to have all of the details that would allow anyone as best as they could to understand who he was, how he got that way, how he was able to do what he did. If you silo the Samantha Koenig investigation and you look at the things that the police department and the FBI did wrong, and in that is the all too common assumption that a girl who comes from a meager background who has had issues with substance abuse is not to be prioritized. On the next episode of Wicked Words... That's the monster that you don't want on the street. I hate to think that there's people like that, but we know that there are. The fear of people like that is why they work so hard to put Michael away. We don't want that guy out on the street, but instead they let that guy keep doing it and put an innocent man away. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen on Apple, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. 